1: Katie O'Malley might be the first journalist in Canada to ever get paid to tweet. She's paid primarily to tweet. She is the Ottawa citizen's online mobile team journalist. They describe her as Canada's first mobile-focused political journalist. She also writes in the paper. She's a fixture, whether you're a journalist on Parliament Hill or if you follow Canadian news and politics online. You cannot avoid Katie O'Malley, and you don't want to. She has 65,000 followers. She has tweeted almost 200,000 times. She's doing an old job in a new way, and I had a chance to speak with her just a few days after the Liberals' surprise majority victory on her home turf, in Ottawa. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Pat Bolduc, John Ashton, James Clifford, Fraser Hayes, Bernie Perouse, Laura Daw, Ali Kadir, Kami Johnson, and Alyssa McLeod. Alyssa, Why did you decide to be awesome?
2: Because I believe that an independent media free of government or corporate influence is essential to a healthy democracy.
1: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody... Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by CJFE. Canadian journalists for free expression are mounting a legal challenge, a charter rights challenge to Bill C 51, along with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Who do you think has the best chance of challenging Bill C 51? The new Liberal government or CJFE? I don't know. My money might be on CJFE. Maybe yours should be too. But CJFE doesn't just do major projects like that to extend your free expression here in Canada. They also help out when journalists get in trouble overseas. I asked Tom Hennifer, who runs CJFE, what kind of stuff they do. Overseas, we assist journalists in distress, journalists who are facing death threats, are facing jail terms. We pay for legal defense. We pay to have them uh, relocated to other countries, to safe countries. We pay to uh, to pay for emergency surgery and other medical expenses in some cases. Listen, I volunteer for CJFE CJFE. I am a member. You should become a member too. Go to cjfe.org. Click become a member and find out about the perks and pub nights with journalists and the annual review, all of which you will get when you join me and become a member. Membership is reduced drastically for listeners of this podcast. cjfe.org. Do it. What even happened where are we now? What is going on? <laughs> I'm sorry to open up with a Grandpa Simpson-like question, but I feel like the universe has shifted in some way that I have yet to comprehend. I'm in, I've been in a daze I since Monday. I think we're all
2: still trying to kind of figure out what this all means, mostly because... Even when you looked at the polls coming into this weekend, I think – well, I I can only speak for myself and, you know, the people that that I was talking to, but I think we all kind of expected a minority. We didn't know whose minority, and it started to look more and more likely towards the end that it would be a liberal minority. But that's a different headspace to be in when you're kind of anticipating that, because you're also sort of mentally planning the constitutional, you know, crisis, and then the aftermath, and then the thing – I lived through two minorities – the thing where Every, con- every budget bill, every money bill, every throne speech bill, there's this constant threat that the government will fall and you'll be put into an election. And, yeah. and I've been getting, I think all of us have sort of been getting our heads ready for that. And then we end up with a majority. And it's like, well, this is weird. So this is our thing for the next four years. So what now?
1: Because you must have been on hold all summer. Everything was happening throughout.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: and then you had a very real possibility that four or five months from now... We do this all again,
2: right? And again, living through two minorities, including actually two surprisingly uh, long-lived minorities, we went through a whole lot of will there or will not They election crises, uh, particularly the second time round. Um, you just there was a sort of mindset you went into where you you knew always that six months – you couldn't plan a vacation more than maybe two months ahead of time. And even that, you were kind of tempting the fates because there was always the possibility that you could have a snap confidence vote that things could come down and that you were going to be in an election. And it was a very weird way to live. We then had you know, four years of majority, and I think a lot of us were kind of expecting – you know, well, that was nice. Now let's get back into minority time.
1: It feels like there's like a, a pause for like deep reflection and, and to, to you know, and even within everybody who I think we've been running from story to story, from talking point to talking point. I mean, it's been a very dramatic and I think pretty nasty process. I wonder to what extent the response like puts to rest a lot of the things that we get obsessed with. There was a larger story going on in people's minds of just... Enough
2: change. Yeah, I think it's true. And it's so trite to say that you know the election, you know, change versus not change. And I think that if you, if you kind of look back, there were all these sort of subplots. There was you know the niqab, which we will not soon forget that episode in Canadian politics. Um, there were there was the debate over the debates remember that yeah there was you know oh no Justin Trudeau is not going to balance budgets he's lost the election if you it's kind of fun to go back and look at how many times various you know media outlets and pundits and other parties declared that the Liberals had lost the elections it was like a weekly occurrence it was yeah. like, well there they go they were contenders but then they said that thing about small business and now it's all over uh, so I think it's been kind of a humbling experience as far as that goes for <laughs> all of us in terms of our our, our skills at uh, at, at sooth saying the future
1: are we like taking back that- to Harley I mean, I include myself in this I think that you know you get into a lifestyle like what's hot what's new what's what am I on now and you know is that even a lesson that can be beat into our heads uh you know that hot moment is often like thi- not, not just not like you know revealing but actually could obscure what's really going on
2: I think the trick is to really appreciate the hot moment and to boggle over it and say oh my gosh this is a hot moment here are the things that are happening but to at all times try so hard to resist the temptation of saying and that means we're going to go to this next moment and this next moment and before you know it you've sort of planned out six months in advance and that's not always the way it goes so it's, it's important to kind of observe and be in the moment and sure I mean a little speculation is fine but always keep your mind focused on the fact that you could be completely wrong about everything yeah. and you have to be ready to be flexible and jump onto that new thing that's actually happening rather than doggedly pursuing what you think you know the, the, the dreaded narrative
1: I mean, one thing that I kind of realized looking back on the last couple of months is the extent to which we just took marching orders on what we should be talking about on any given day, you know,
2: the economy, we're always supposed to be talking about the economy.
1: Yeah. Or it was very clear. Like we were just, I mean, and a lot of this did come from Harper where, okay, I'm making this an issue. I'm making that an issue. I'm doubling down on this. And everyone just sort of, you know, I mean, and it's not like he had complete autonomous control over that because it could come from Duffy, it could come externally. But is there anything to be taken away from this about, like, well, did we serve people properly? Like, should we have exerted more of a of a guiding hand? i like, you know, what? we're going to ignore that. We don't have to uh, talk about the Nakab for the next, you know.
2: I'm always a fan of occasionally saying, you know what, enough putting out a press release does not actually dictate that I have to treat this as news. I almost think, however, at the same time, you know, your readers and your audience, they need to be served by you actually covering what's going on. So I think... In a perfect world, and obviously we don't live in a perfect world where media outlets have endless resources to spend on this stuff, but it would be really interesting to almost have a two-stream approach to election coverage. You have one team that is actually doing that. This is what happened. These are the leaders. This is the interplay because that is all important. It is all exciting, and it's it's you know very. You have to adapt very quickly to kind of uh, that changing pace. It's like sports. At the same time, yeah, and, exactly. And that's, that's
1: fun. But at the way, same
2: in- time, you could also have a team that was kind of looking at uh, other issues, looking at the way uh, voters are reacting, looking at policy stuff that they feel um, Vice is a good example of a, of a media outlet that actually did a pretty good job of, of First Nations issues and they kind of picked a few things that they wanted to focus on so they
1: championed some stuff and they,
2: and, they, and they stuck to those which is you know it's it might be easier in their particular line of work because they don't have to be all things to all people. People reading Vice for their election coverage were perfectly happy to get what Vice thought was really great news, but I suspect most of those people were also, you yeah. know, checking out what was in the the other media outlets just to make sure they didn't miss anything. It means everything's complementary; like it all it all kind of works together. But it is uh, it, it would be interesting to see if that would end up producing a more uh, more of a mix in terms of intensity of the coverage. That's an
1: interesting thing that you suggest there that like, I mean, yeah, nobody's getting like, like what's happening mm-hmm. today in politics from Vice but it, they they pick some territory and they make a niche out of it and then I'm looking at the, yeah, uh, the media's course. response and then like the, the national observers looking, well, what does this mean for the oil industry and the environment and if if the way that new, orga- new organizations kind of carve out their turf is, is by specializing mm-hmm. like that because, you know, you say earlier that you know, maybe we should have two teams. Mm-hmm. The mainstream media always has two t- two teams. They had the opinionators and the columnists. It's
2: very true. Yeah, the
1: analysts, and then they had people on the ground doing the reporting. But. There's almost like a weird information loop between those where there was – you know, yes, you're getting an editorial as a part – from a piece of reporting, but they just feed directly into each other.
2: You don't always get to do the other uh, – one thing that I that I did, uh, I guess it would have been maybe two weeks ago. No, it was right after the liberal platform launched. so it would have been – yeah, I guess about a week and a half, two weeks ago. I actually looked at what they were doing on democratic reform. Uh, specifically the things they were doing in the House of Commons, which for me, I'm obsessed with parliamentary stuff and procedure and kind of how the actual workings of Parliament go. So I just ignored everything else that day. There were probably, well, of course, there would have been the daily feedings, there would have been the press conferences. I'm sure there were issues that arose. I ignored that for the day, and I just, like, focused on this, this separate thing, and kind of uh, did my best at analyzing and and sort of putting out what I thought the pros and cons and kind of the realistic and not-so-realistic aspects of it. So... You can't, no one has the luxury of being able to do that all the time, but I think that it, I, I am lucky to have you know, have bosses that will give me the freedom of saying, you know what, I'm just going to like tune out from this main event for like a day or two and do this other thing because I think this other thing is going to lead to something very interesting.
1: And nerd out on parliamentary procedure. Yeah, exactly.
2: And sort of, you know, and and again, I'm not talking about disappearing for weeks at a time and you know coming back with maybe 200 words or something, but sometimes it is good to be able to kind of pause and get away from the the constant and, and just sort of look at something else. It's harder during an election because you're always what is it uh, fear of missing out it is in media we have our own sort of our yeah. very own specialized fomo which is we are always worried that while we're looking over here they're going to be doing something something is going to be happening over in the other place that we will feel like idiots for not covering so it becomes a very uh, a yeah. very frenzied way of approaching but it but
1: it's it's a weird double-sided fear of missing out you know you're afraid that when you're focusing on one thing you're going to miss the other thing but then you're afraid i mean i just know this it's at story meetings every morning it's just like how are we not going to talk about you know whatever like i open mm-hmm. up the arrival paper i listen to the rival broadcast they're talking about this and there's still this concept that people are listening to the one Broadcast and and not the other, the one newspaper, and not the other. It almost like an algorithm that's broken, which is like somebody reads it in the Globe and Mail or whatever CBC. Okay, how, what's our take on this? Mm-hmm. Well, why does your take have to be on that?
2: Yeah, it's you true. It, it, it's absolutely true. But we, we we're a competitive industry at the same time as we're all sort of uh, covering the same thing. And we we're do, competitive for weird reasons. Don't I you, know. Do you think
1: like is it actually like the news consumer is? Is uh, going to judge one like the Globe and Mail's coverage of that day of the Duffy trial against the National Post coverage of that day of the Duffy trial. Like it's better. To, if See, you're when like, I
2: wear my, consu- my news consumer hat, I actually I look forward to both of them. I really want to read what the Globe has to say, and then I really want to read what the National Post has <laughs> to say, and then I want to go look at like every other piece of coverage I can find. I only I do if, 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 if they
1: actually you know if somebody's like okay, well let's let's take mm-hmm. it, let's let, a different angle or let's find something new yeah. about it. And if you can't, or if that's sort of diminishing returns, it's like well just look. At something else or there's a million things you could be looking at there,
2: there really are but yeah we do feel we feel compelled to you know treat our readers as if they're in a bomb shelter and the only publication they get a day is whatever we're handing them and with
1: it, fewer resources than ever before so yeah. those redundancies are actually quite costly
2: it, it, you know, you're, again, if I were, if I were, you know, running a media outlet, maybe I would have more of a sense of how to go about, you know, dealing with that. But hey, I just, I just write my stuff, yeah. and do, do <laughs> my things. And, and I am happy to say that there are a whole lot of news outlets in Canada and I pretty much enjoy reading all of them.
1: Apart from the resource management side of it, I kind of had this moment where I was like, oh, I just realized the extent to which the way that I engage with a topic is dictated by like outside forces and not like the media, but politics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I opened up like, wow, Justin fucking Trudeau is the next prime minister. And it hit me for the first time. Like, that's so weird. It was so determined by this. Oh, he's not ready thing or trying to make him into a clown. Mm -hmm. And that's so politicized that I, I don't think we ever had a national debate around, the idea of Dynasty. Like, I'm not so big on Dynasty. Like, I wasn't big on W. And it's pretty obvious, I think, without taking anything away from the guy, that it's not by any, you know, accomplishment. You know, that this is particular. He needs to be named Trudeau to have gotten the opportunity when he did. And there's a conversation about, are we, like, what, what is it about people that that's a big plus you know
2: well it's, it's i mean it's an interesting question if he were named Justin Trudeau and he were Paul Calandra for example would we be you know would would it all have sort of transpired as it did i think it's it, it becomes impossible to yeah to like separate the sort of legacy from the actual guy but at the same time, the trouble with dynasties is okay. What are we going to do? Are we going to like you know put generational term limits? Are we going to say that you know once one member of a family has come to a position of high office, then you know not their children, maybe the grandchildren are allowed back in the ring? It, it does become really it becomes really difficult.
1: And- I'm getting the sense that you and I are very different thinkers. No, it's not a policy question. I just like what is it about people that we like like kings or we like like the son of? That's a weird thing that you know I don't think we ever actually you know because it felt like you were giving a point to the other side mm. for those who wanted change, you know, that that never actually got hashed out. And, you know, I I think a lot more of the guy than I did at the beginning of the campaign, but but, that's almost a separate issue from just... That's so strange
2: yeah, that, we, it, that we did it is, that. It could it have been anyone weird.
1: out of 35 million people. We chose that guy. It
2: is a weird thing that happened, but, you know, I mean, you kind of saw it happening through the Liberal leadership, and then there, I mean, there were there were many, many, many moments along there where it looked like it was going to, Canadians were resoundingly not going to choose, yeah. you know, the party headed up by Justin Trudeau. So, you know, it was kind of, a, it was a, a high-risk, high-potential gain strategy for the Liberals, and they managed to luck out on it.
1: I, I actually think, like, you know, Jerry Butts for Prime Minister. Like, that, like, <laughs> that seems like that guy, uh, <laughs> Hey, Katie Chalford, man.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Katie Telford for prime minister.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's one of those situations where people are like he's got some good people around him, hmm. and and I think everybody's kind of crossing their fingers that he has some good people around him.
2: Well, and I mean that's uh, to be fair, that's also true for both you know for for Tom Mulcair and for Stephen Harper. You 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 don't get to that position, you don't get anywhere near that position without having. Some people around you that are really, really good at that stuff. No one is a one-man band prime minister or one-woman band prime minister. Yeah. Even Elizabeth May has advisors, sure. and she's you know probably the closest of any of them to someone who can almost do it all herself. But they, you you need the team approach. You just can't do it all by yourself.
1: Yeah, no. That she's the closest to sort of an indie rock kind of thing. Yeah. But, but after like Ignatia, if you had to wonder, like, wow, nobody knows what they're doing over there, and and so I guess somebody did this time.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess third strike. <laughs> yeah. This, this. I mean, <laughs> it is interesting. To To imagine, because, again, there were many points along the election where it looked like the liberals were just going to go right over the cliff. Wasn't this so
1: consequential? Like, if this went the way that we thought it was going to and it was Mulcair's, like, that would have been it for, forget Trudeau, the party. Yeah,
2: well, that's exactly it. Like, this was kind of their last, you know, their last
1: uh And instead, it's a majority. Like, that's a pretty big swing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure Michael Ignatiev is kind of gazing at the results and wondering, you know, what was it? Why wasn't I that guy?
1: (laughs) He needed the goatee.
2: Perhaps perhaps that was it, the tattoo.
1: Here's another Grandpa Simpson kind of question. What do you do? Like, what is your job? Because you sort of are the first person maybe to ever have your particular version of your job.
2: Um, I, I mean, in, in one sense, I do, I, I, I cover politics. I look at what's going on. I try to figure out my own angle. I try to figure out questions that people need answers. And then I, I do my best to kind of write it up in a way that's going to be uh, both interesting and informative, I hope. I take it as kind of a challenge to grab something that's maybe not, you know, seen as super fascinating, like political financing or, you know, or, or election law and try to get people excited about it. That's always kind of the challenge, right, is to get people interested in what you're covering. Um, you know, on a, on a daily basis, I, I when I wake up in the morning, I never know for sure, most likely what I'm going to be doing that day. It tends to be in the next couple of hours that something either comes up and, you know, I want to write about it or my bosses are like, hey, here's a thing what do you think of this thing? Do you have things to say on this thing? And then, you know, can kind of get into it. It will, of course, be very different when Parliament gets back because it does become the beast that dictates much of our lives. Mm-hmm. We live by the bells just like everyone else. The MPs keep you hopping and you really never know what you're going to be doing at any given time. That's the case even in majority. So I, I suspect that uh, I will find myself covering a lot more committees, covering a lot more House battles, covering a lot more Parliament when we finally have a Parliament again. So it's yeah. been interesting not having that. I, I kind of miss it.
1: We're a few years past the point where it's sort of, gee whiz, she uses Twitter. Yeah. But, but I think that God, it's... I
2: hope
1: so. <laughs> those stories are... You're uh, <laughs> glad to be past them, I'm sure. But I think what's unique about your space amongst parliamentary reporters is that, like... It almost feels like digital is your primary platform. It is
2: my primary like platform, that, and yeah. that's
1: actually official in your job. Yeah, table. that is.
2: I'm mobile first. I like legitimately am. That's my my primary. Like goal when you're tweeting, like,
1: you're doing your job.
2: Yeah, well, I'm also usually I'm I'm tweeting, and then I put head down and I write you know something up for the the app, and sometimes it makes it into the paper, sometimes it doesn't. My job is to make sure that you know readers there are fed. Uh, tweeting is. It is. It's my job, but it's also. I just like to hear what people have to say, and yeah. you know, and and sometimes bounce stuff around. I, I'm a I'm a communicative person. It's a it's a good way of kind of. Uh, back in the day when I was at McLean's, when we were both at McLean's. Yeah. Um, do you remember? We were like the only – well, we seemed like the only media outlet where we actually had comment threads that were really interesting. They were filled with really interesting people. The writers, all of us would like actually participate in the discussion. We'd participate in each other's comment threads. I
1: can probably remember the names of some of those comments. Yeah,
2: it it was fantastic. And it was was, – to me – Twitter is a little bit like that because you do get to have that feedback and there are a lot of very, you know, interesting, funny, smart, insightful, wise people that you can uh, sort of uh, glom on to what they have to say and and it it really sort of, it shrinks the world and makes it bigger at the same time. So I I can't, it's difficult to imagine covering politics without it now, just simply because you have all of that, you know, that input and that, it's not only you taking your message and your news to the world, but it's sort of sucking it in as well. So it's become- It just becomes so key to what we do. I think
1: it was sort of Pollyannish because what I was writing about for Macleans at the time was like, oh, the people formerly known as the audience, and mm. it's a conversation now. Those were buzzwords at the time, but it actually has sort of morphed into the truth, where the conversation—it's still not like there's this idea, oh, Twitter is the public sphere. No, it's it's a particular slice of it for people who are who want to yeah. engage, and, but it's the people who, you know, in the comments you would always get like the corrections. You know, in in the comments, or you you, you get somebody who expands your story in some way, or a conversation that yields something interesting.
2: It's still not the perfect. It's not like the Platonic ideal, as it were, of you know, of of perfect. Perfect conversation and perfect equality between writer and audience, and everyone is able to say what they feel, and no one feels like they're you know being drowned out or or not being heard. Yeah. But it's it's getting there. It's it's pretty much the closest thing we we've got. I don't know about you, but anytime anyone asks me, so what's going to replace Twitter? I always have to pause and say. I'm not really sure because I can't really figure out how you could do better what it is that Twitter does. It's an astonishingly simple idea. Because
1: it's not about adding something. It's about the fact that it's so It's so streamlined and
2: so, at its heart, it is such such a minimalist idea. It's really difficult to see how, from a journalist perspective at least, how you could improve upon that.
1: More than anybody else that comes to mind, like I can make the case that, okay, so it's great to like, whatever, promote your content on Twitter. You, uh, it, then it becomes this glorified, like, oh, it's letters to the editor, but, but a mm. response. Or it's a reporting tool where you're actually um, getting information for you know, some sort of, you know, crowdsourced journalism, hive mind thing. It's also a good reporting tool to ask people questions in public. Sometimes they'll answer mm-hmm. questions they wouldn't otherwise, you know, and... and shame uh, tweets. Shame tweets is how I get most of my uh, <laughs> interviews. Nothing like a good shame
2: tweet. That's
1: how I book. <laughs> but all of that sort of imagines that you're using a reporting tool and then you go report in a newspaper. Mm -hmm. And more than anyone else, and I would actually be curious to know on like a measurable level, when you are reporting, when you, Katie Mm -hmm. O'Malley, are reporting on Twitter, you might be reaching a larger audience than when you file paragraphs in the newspaper.
2: Entirely possible. You know how Twitter is. You can have a follower, but who knows if that follower is logged in in the last six months. So it becomes really difficult to actually, you know to know how many people you're talking to. And plus people, you know, I don't know about you, but I follow, how many people do I follow? I think I follow about 900 people. I mean, I use lists because I'm not insane. So I'm able to, you know, kind of uh, keep some tabs on it, but I'm sure I miss stuff. So you can never be exactly sure how many people are going to be paying attention to what you're saying, but you should always assume that uh, you should always treat Twitter as if, you know, don't say anything so stupid that you're going to be like, oh, I didn't realize anyone was going to be paying attention. Oh, yeah. No, you're it's always, public. <laughs> always just assume that when you're reporting that – plus people do go back and they look at it again or something gets retweeted and, it. you know, you can it's never part really of the control. the public record. Exactly. You yeah. can never really know. And when you're reporting – always, you know, try to, to keep that in mind, uh, f- you know, ob- for obvious reasons.
1: Probably depends on what you have to say. I mean, you've got yeah. 65,000 followers on Twitter and people often make the mistake of thinking you've got 65,000 readers. Mm. You might have a lot fewer, you might have a lot more because depending on the tweet, you know, probably like something under 10% will read that any yeah. given tweet. But if you report something important... Suddenly
2: it goes everywhere, yeah.
1: You could be retweeted. And, you know, Twitter gives you these diagnostics. I don't know if they give everybody this or just verified people.
2: (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) plebes.
1: Maybe everybody gets this and I'm just a dick. Um, But I don't know how they figure it out, but they tell you, well, this tweet got read this many times. I don't
2: super understand that, and I try really hard not to look at it. I was the person who turned off all of my – I don't look at – like on my client, I can't see how many followers anyone has Uh because I I realized that I might be subconsciously giving more weight to people with, you know, like – Five hundred followers, as opposed to two. Subconsciously, yeah. If somebody well, no. says something shitty about me, and I've no, got, I know, I know, hundred thousand followers, egg, but, I'm paying more attention to that I really, I really want to like. Try to, you know, treat everyone's views as, as equal as far as that goes. Everyone's is,
1: views aren't equal and not, not based some, on how many followers some they have. eggs
2: though. probably have super smart things to say and yes. some blue checks don't. So you yeah. cannot go by this alone. You need to.
1: No, I, I think that not all views are equal, but a follower count is a pretty lousy way of measuring whether or not you need to probably listen, listen yeah. to somebody. Yeah. Probably, yeah. Back when we were at McLean's, they actually, for a brief period of time, let us writers look at the stats
2: Oh, which, that was the worst.
1: Yeah, I, I can't decide. I can't make up my mind. Like, <gasps> I think that writers should have some idea as to whether or not their stuff is getting read or not. But I think that making it it's like
2: painful. Well, it's uh, thankfully well. When I was in Queens, it wasn't so. What is it? It's Chartbeat is the one they use now, which will tell you like at what point in an article people stopped reading, which oh is like God. the most disheartening thing. Thankfully, I never actually get to see this because it would it would you know probably horrify me. Head I just turn off the internet Head forever. And lead.
1: Yeah. In general, back in those days, 2006-ish, a big but not huge McLean story online would get like 10,000 views. And I'm sure you routinely have tweets that, you know, I, I realized this at a certain point that like the social media audience may be overtaking the other audience.
2: It's true, but since we all need to eat, yeah. we've got to figure out some way of balancing the two.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I know that Post Media just today announced mm-hmm. that they killed their um, their tablet. Mm-hmm. I mean, even as the star is pumping millions into their tablet project, uh, we'll see how that goes. As who, The Citizen had a tablet magazine, is that right? yes. I think they were getting like about eight downloads a day or something I like that. I honestly
2: don't know, but I got I gather, I gather, I get the impression that you know, yeah, the, the decision was made to you know make the app the central focal point for online news, which does kind of make sense.
1: Yeah, and and they they killed it today. Yes, and, and yes, they're all dead. Yeah, um, IP
2: Tablets. This
1: is how we're going to monetize online. Doesn't look like it's going to. Well,
2: hand. the thing is, you can you can monetize the the apps to an extent if you get your little clicky ads in them. I think the tablet thing, and again, this is just based on kind of what I've heard and what I've seen. The issue is it's not even so much tablet editions. It's tablet themselves. Phones are getting so powerful that people are almost like, well, I don't really need my tablet anymore. I can actually just use my phone. So doing something that's designed particularly for that slightly larger interface isn't always worth it because you can get people with phones. It can be much more... um, it can be a much more streamlined and sort of minimalist uh, display. It can work on sort of – it can be uh, platform agnostic, and you can get a lot more readers that way, and people do seem to like it. Like, I think – I do wonder if, you know, two or three years from now – you, I mean, iPads are seen as sort of, you know, a quaint relic of the past, like desktops. Yeah. It's like, oh, remember when we used to have tablets? Oh, man. And everyone will just have their phones that are basically the equivalent thereof and can also happily serve as phones.
1: Well, it's pretty similar to our Twitter conversation. Like, oh, what what can we add yeah. to this? You know, can it be bigger? Can yes. It, <laughs> and advertisers love, oh, I want to have video on it. I want to have, one. it's like, no, it's actually like the phone is the killer thing because it's, yeah. because it's simple. It fits in my pocket. It does all these different things. Exactly. And that's bad news for, like, they were able, whereas a banner ad or an ad that's delivered over a mobile phone gets a fraction of what a newsprint ad would get, the tablet ads are getting, like, two or three times.
2: And, see, that's where the, in some senses, yes, I'm sure, you know, we in the media probably have to take some of the blame for the state of our industry. But at the same time, I do look at sort of ad values of eyeballs and shares and printed. It does seem very out of whack to me. Like, it, it really seems that there's some holdovers from days when, you know, a, a wee little, you know, eighth of a page ad in a Globe and Mail was worth so much more than a thing on the Globe and Mail front page. Well, you know, eyeball-wise, you're probably getting pretty equivalent. Yeah. And I feel like the the the, the value hasn't, those prices and those values haven't really shifted. When that happens, you may see online news becoming a lot more viable. I think we just have to kind of see if we can survive until then.
1: Yeah. You know, I think about this a lot, about how much of the newspaper business has always been about the emotions and egos of advertisers because the position that the newspaper had is like, this is what's happening today. And if I turn to page four of what's happening today, I see my product. I am what's happening today. You are
2: the exciting thing. You are the thing that all eyeballs are going to be on.
1: And then you've got this internet where there's a million different things people could click on. And what are you? You're a banner at the top of some articles on one of those (laughs) sites. Like it's...
2: It doesn't feel as tangible. No. And 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 you
1: may actually be reaching way more people and you may actually be able to target it to the right people. I
2: legit click on ads sometimes and buy things. Like it has happened. This is a thing that has happened. I have actually done this. And... I, you know, I can't click on my newspaper yet.
1: But doesn't that lead you to this, like, conclusion that advertising was never actually about selling stuff as much as it was, or maybe a a large, overvalued part of it was just that, like making brands feel good about themselves. You well, know? and
2: also I think the advertiser, the advertising industry also likes to make money and to exist and to continue to present itself as viable. So they have to kind of act as the middleman and convince both sides that, you know, they're very necessary.
1: Yeah. So I can't tell if, if online ads are undervalued or if newspaper ads were for decades and decades. Hugely overvalued. Hugely overvalued. I don't, yeah.
2: I don't know. I suspect it's somewhere in the middle and I suspect it will eventually kind of level out to something approaching a, you know, realistic uh, number on on all sides. The The issue is going to be, can, you know, we actually survive till then?
1: Yeah. Are you addicted to this stuff? I mean, it's, it feels like trying to think of the right analogy here. If you're predisposed to have an addictive personality Mm -hmm. and somebody introduces you to crack, if you were already a news reporter and then somebody introduces social media and blackberries, is this just like a bad alchemy?
2: I, well, bad alchemy. I think that or in is some ways, the, the, I think in some hey, ways, crackheads
1: love crack. It's, crackheads <laughs> do
2: love crack, and I bet they have excellent defense for it. No, I mean I think from a reporter's perspective, the idea of being able to report what's going on to a virtually limitless audience in theory as it happens without going through any kind of filter at all is – that's kind of the essence of journalism. Yeah, the the idea of being able to share. The first time I really, really realized the power and how sort of vital that can be was actually during the um, the G8 slash twenty in Toronto, because that was a perfect example of you know uh, events transpiring everywhere. That yeah, I I mean I you you know you could send your files and you could and people obviously did file, but if you had a if you I was working at CBC at the time, if you had a camera, you were a target. For like everyone, because you're very visibly media, you have a, you're either standing by a truck that says CBC on it, or you've, you know, got a camera and a crew. It's very obvious who you are. If you're just tweeting and reporting by your phone, you could be anyone, which means Mm -hmm. you can go anywhere, which means you're far less likely to be, you know, to be sort of uh, centered out as media. It really allows you to almost be incognito. And that was, to me, was just, during that particular context, that was really important.
1: Oh, you're not answering my question at all. What was the question?
2: Sorry, honestly. No, you're making a
1: wonderful (laughs) argument, like just sort of practically, it's a wonderful reporting tool. It lets you go incognito. It lets you, like, there's no filter. It's it's great. What I'm talking about is you have tweeted 194,000 times. You've had something to say on Twitter 194,000 times. So I I'm not good at quick math, but if you're if you're filing stories, I think you're at some some small small fraction of that. Like what's your dog's name?
2: Blackberry.
1: Your dog's name is Blackberry. See, her name
2: is Blackberry. <laughs> yes, it's true. That's more <laughs> my addiction to my phone technically.
1: Right. Are, are you are you an, an addict is this
2: Um
1: how does this affect you on a personal level? Just you, to think, you, I you love know.
2: visual. Oh, I will put my phone away. Like my I'm, an, I'm a, an e-text reader. I gave up on the hard copy books, but uh-huh. I read on an actual Kindle. It is not a Kindle that is attached to the internet in any way other than books go on it. There is no email. There is no web. Yeah. If I'm sitting there, and I love reading, I, when I'm reading my book, it's just me and my book.
1: There is an addictive quality to having something that nobody else in the world knows about and having to tell everybody about it. You know, being the intermediary, being a reporter, yeah. there's juice there.
2: Absolutely, but I think that's been the case as long as, you know, we had pens. I know, but the process <laughs> yes. just
1: got like... like
2: Yeah, much quicker.
1: Yeah, we, we went from like Tylenol 3s to, to... I'll keep going back to the hard, <laughs> hard narcotics, but it, just, it really... Like, you could just constantly... Be reporting now
2: It's true But you know I would go crazy If I spent all of my time Reporting Because yeah. sometimes You actually have to You know Tune it off And you know Go go watch Netflix Or go for a walk And you can do that With
1: your e-reader or, or, with, yeah. Or,
2: or yeah Just you know Just get out Just go do something Entirely different From reporting I, It is You're right You do need to be able To put down the tool I also I mean Remember that While I use Twitter For, for reporting And for work I also just Kind of enjoy it As a person Like I yeah. have a, You know It's also my personal account. It blurs
1: like, that stuff Because it, it it, it kind of feeds into your personal life and, you're, and you're, yeah. you're joking with people and it's riffing. It's a lot of fun and you're talking to fellow travelers who are obsessed with the same yeah. things that you are. Yeah,
2: which is, which I, I again, not seeing a problem. <laughs> like I actually <laughs> think like that that's, so as long as you're doing it within limits and as long as, you know, you see the sunshine occasionally, yeah. your dog gets walked, you, you know, interact with human beings.
1: Yeah, no, I think you answered my question. Um, <laughs> So why'd you leave the CBC? The Post Media might not be around soon. CBC, whatever else happens, so well, Justin's going to give them a hundred million dollars back. So uh, CBC is going to be around. Yeah,
2: and they deserve it. CBC is an excellent institution. Um, I want them to have
1: it. We'll see if they deserve it.
2: <laughs> uh, honestly, it uh, I I really I really did love my time at CBC, but I I get itchy feet, and the Citizen offer came along. It was basically like a dream job. It came along at exactly at the time when I was starting to think, ugh maybe it's time to sort of stretch my legs, do something else. And it was just sort of a, a serendipitous series of events. I, I wasn't, you know, looking for another job. It just happened along and there it was. And I decided to take it.
1: Yeah. Are you worried about the future of post media?
2: Um, You know, honestly, uh, again, you know, as you said, Justin's going to give the CBC $100 million. When I was at CBC, it was during, you know, conservative years where there was this constant threat that, you know, we were – well, we were constantly losing money. They were constantly – the budget was being cut. And there was always this sort of specter in the background like and then, you know, they're going to privatize and sell the entire organization. So – I don't think I'm any more worried than I was then. I think that working in this industry means you live in a perpetual state of not being sure that your profession is going to continue to be viable beyond, say, six months to a year. I wouldn't – I mean, honestly, maybe I'm in denial, but it's not actually much worse than post-media.
1: I think there's going to be some form of news industry 10 or 20 years from now. and My guess is that whoever's got 65,000 Twitter followers now (laughs) probably has a place in it.
2: Or, you know, I'll go work at Fancy Socks. I might be very good at that.
1: Fancy Socks? You
2: know, Fancy Socks. They sell They sell sockware. They sell
1: fancy socks. They do,
2: they do indeed.
1: <laughs> is uh, the new boss any different than the old boss? Do you think that uh, with Trudeau, it, it, uh, the job of reporters is going to change? There's, oh, God, I hope not. I mean, well, we talked a, a lot on, on, on Canada Land about just how difficult it was to get information out of... Uh, out okay, of, so
2: I have sort of a, diff- I have a... I have a complex view on this. Okay. In one sense, I actually appreciated... The fact that, for the most part, with the now soon to be former PMO and government, there was no when well, you don't call people up as a as a decom if you don't sort of hand out favors as, as do some reporters nicely as uh, you know if you if you don't. Try to, if you don't have leverage, as in if you don't be nice to me, then I'm not going to be nice to you because you're not nice to anyone ever, it becomes a very freeing relationship from both sides. Because I, you know, there were many times where various directors of communication to the prime minister were very angry at me for various things. And maybe in a previous generation, I would be like, oh, no, now I won't get the scoop on such and such. And I will. Oh, this is terrible. Yeah. I better be nicer. In this case, it was like, wow, he's angry. Well, on to the next thing. Like, there's literally, there's there's nothing you can lose at this point. I actually thought that was kind of freeing. Where it became ridiculous was when you couldn't get actual, just factual information. Yeah. That wasn't even helpful to them.
1: Even when it was stuff that didn't hurt them no, anyway. it,
2: it You know, it, it, that just became, you know, sort of obstructionist for no good reason, only because... The notion that there was a war suggests that our side, the media, was actually in any way interested in fighting. We never were. We were basically just like – the conservatives got a morale boost in a lot of ways, I think, from going after the media in general. They, you saw that on the top with the fundraising letters and stuff. Uh, but it well. would also, But it would, it would, it would also – on a micro level, like some DCOMs really seem to hate journalists.
1: There is a war. Journalists are on a side, and the side is that we're trying to get information, and and they're on the side of trying to not give us information. Yeah, but
2: there was this constant, you know, oh, you would always see this, you know, PM over to the press gallery the next round. It was always like, well, we're not fighting back. We're basically just trying to do our job and sitting here and not, you know, know, lodging. You know, there's no Spartacus here. But it, it was... It seemed like the we were one of the easier things to go after if people were having, you know, a bad day in PMO or in the center. One thing that would never fail to kind of cheer them up seemed to be to occasionally make the media's life difficult. Um, that was annoying. I, I would like to hope that perhaps that won't be the case, but I'm not going to count on it. I've gotten used to this adversarial relationship between us and the government. I don't think it's necessarily unhealthy. I think there are times when it just makes sense for both of us for them to, you know – I don't know, perhaps provide copies of press releases instead of making us go find them on the website, but at the same time. And also, the one thing that I really do hope changes is, let us talk to your experts. Let us talk to your civil servants who actually know stuff. Don't make me talk to a ministerial staffer who really doesn't have any more idea than what I know about this issue that I'm asking them, and is just reading the talking points that were prepared to her by PCO, which were prepared by someone, the person who I should actually be talking to in the first place, who can answer my questions. So that is something I would like like to see. But beyond that.
1: Yeah. I can't tell if I should be depressed by what you just said, because, you know, <laughs> the days when it was relationship dependent and it was a relationship management thing and which reporters are liked by government officials, like there's a big problem with that, yes. you know, and yet for everybody just to be reduced to like as a to a functionary, you know, like I don't have to worry if you like me or not, because you, you have your marching orders and you're not going to stray from them. Mm-hmm. I have mine, which is to try to rattle this out of you one way or the other. And that's just what we're going to do. Maybe it it's would, more honest.
2: It would be, well, it, w- it would also be great if you could have a happy medium where it could be, you know, hey, you and I, we actually might, you know, go out and, and, and grab a beer together. But right now I am trying to get this information. You are not giving it to me. This is work. Then, you know, everything else comes is separate, but I'm not going to stop doing my job. You're not going to stop doing your job simply because there's, you know, a friendliness there. Friendliness doesn't have to imply control. Uh huh. You can, in fact, separate these. I yeah. think these aspects.
1: Yeah. And I think you have to worry about being spun if you're too much of a friend.
2: Oh, absolutely. Well, that's what that's what I mean. That's why you have to separate them, and that's why you have to. You know, I've got, I do have, as I'm sure all journalists do, have uh, you know friends in all parties, and they, you know, sometimes I'll say like, "Here's our argument," and I will listen, but I'll say like, "Are you just spinning me again?" It's like, okay, no, no more spin. We're done. We're just moving on to a different issue. You have to, you have to always be aware for it, but.
1: Does that happen? Are you out like socially, and you wonder if somebody's working some angle on you, like try, trying to, you know, slowly sway you, or?
2: or oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Do you think that that's deliberate, or do you think, I mean... Wh- no,
2: I don't, no, know, no, I don't think it's a sinister plot. I think that they genuinely believe what they're, you know, trying to say, and they really would like to persuade other people. Ideally, journalists who are writing about it and making their life difficult of, of the rightness of their views. And there's nothing, you know, inherently wrong with that.
1: People do drink the Kool-Aid. If, you, if you're if you in yeah. the culture of a party, or if you're in the culture of an organization, you ultimately get passionate and convinced and swayed. Well,
2: and particularly, this is a self-selecting, uh, for in all political parties, the people who gravitate and who end up being staff and who end up working there are, for the most part, people who did so and, and and you know, started in the first place because they genuinely believe in what the party was doing. So, you know, in, in that sense, it's not even so much as they drank the Kool-Aid as they came, you know, pre-drunk. They, they, they wanted to believe that's how they turned up and now they're just going to, you know, bring the cause to the world.
1: And these are the people you choose to hang out with?
2: Well, some of them are. Oh, well, the other ones are journalists, so like pick your poison. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Katie O'Malley, thank you very much.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: That is your Canada Land Show. I hope you liked it. You can always email me. I am at jesse at Show.com. I read them all and I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at jesse Brown. The website where we are breaking news stories all the time is at canadalandshow.com. The crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday, and the next episode of Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. If you like this show, please support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman. Found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be
0: served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.